Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Metadata. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 176 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in St. Louis. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we took our annual look at the results of the two major legal tech surveys that come out every summer. And tried, we also tried to make a gentle introduction for lawyers to the blockchain. Some parts of the two surveys prompted us to want to take a look back to the future. Tom, what's all on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, we'll be revisiting one of our oldest and, I guess, most favorite areas of interest, the cloud, and how the cloud looks to us today. In our second segment, we'll wonder whether anyone is downloading apps anymore. Uh, and as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. But first, we, we want to revisit and take a look back at, or take a look now, at the cloud. Uh, so famous in myth, so famous in story. Uh, I went back to the podcast vault, uh, at least to as far back as we've been posting them on our show notes website, which was episode 45, December of 2010. And in, in that episode, we named cloud computing one of the uh, top legal topics of the year. Uh, I'm sure we were probably talking about it even sooner than that. But Dennis, you know, what brings us back to the topic of the cloud? Haven't, ha hasn't there been everything? Haven't we said all there is to say? Is there nothing more to say on the topic? Well, there's part of me that, that thinks that because we sort of had this this topic in hand for a long time and, and uh, you know, never, never quite decided to make it a main topic. But then when I got the ABA survey results and I sort of think how relatively small percentage of, of lawyers actually use the cloud um, or, or think they use the cloud versus how many it looks like actually use the cloud. I think there's a big confusion out there and it, it just really surprises me. So I thought maybe we should talk about it because I think the, the cloud has become so important across everything that's happening in technology. And it seems like for lawyers, at least there's a, there's a fundamental misunderstanding of the cloud. And I'm, I'm not sure why that is. Uh, Cause I think you're right, Tom. I, you say 2010 that we we're talking about it on the podcast. I know I was writing about it much before then. And, and I know that in the sort of, if you go back to the early days of what's now cloud computing or one type of cloud computing uh, used to be known as companies as application service providers. Uh, and as a lawyer, I was uh, reviewing, negotiating the ASP contracts back in the late 90s. So the cloud has been around a long time, but when you look at the numbers and the level of understanding that lawyers seem to have in those surveys... The more I thought about it, the more I, it surprised me. So I don't know. That's Tom, I guess we, the behind the scenes of the podcast, we're always trying to figure out ways to uh, 
get the other of us to do the definition section of the show. <laughs> but so I'm going to flip it to you and say, Tom, do you have other comments or do you want to kind of give us a, a definition of the cloud for people who are listening? Well, I'm, I'll do both. I, I think that in terms of comments, you know, we I, I mentioned the December 2010 podcast. I also went back because I was curious uh, to look at uh, our collaboration book, the book that we published in 2008. I remember a time, Dennis, when you and I were giving presentations saying that there were two things that made collaboration possible, and it was the internet and the cloud. And what was interesting is we mentioned the cloud not once in our collaboration book. So in 2008, we weren't talking about it in terms of what it meant, but by 2010, it was the most important, one of the most important technologies for lawyers to talk about. So I, I think that the fact that it came on that fast uh, and that we've been talking about it ever since, I think is an important thing. Um, in terms of definitions, I am going to take a radical approach to this. I, I know, Dennis, in the notes for the, in our little show script and our show notes that we have, you talk about the different types of clouds and we talk about infrastructure as a service and software as a service and and different types of clouds. I'm going to take what I'm going to call a radical approach and let you push back on me with this and say, I think that lawyers don't need to understand what the cloud is. They just need to understand what it does. And, and they don't need to understand the technology part of it. All you need to know about the cloud is that you are storing your files on someone else's computer located somewhere else. There are benefits to it. We're going to talk about those benefits. But there's a lot more to it. But for the purposes of the discussion, do we really need to know more about the details? I know we want to talk about due diligence and making sure that you select the right cloud provider and all of that. But in terms of technology, I really don't think lawyers need to know more than it's a service where you're storing your files someplace else. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was looking at the definition that I used. I'm actually going to agree uh, with you wholeheartedly on that because I was I looking at the, def de the definition that I used in this tech report I did for LTRC, looking at the the survey, and I said you can understand cloud computing practically as software or services that can be accessed and used over the internet using a browser or more more commonly now a mobile app where the software itself is not installed locally on the computer being used by the lawyer accessing the service and so the notion of hosted software hosted services you know those things all make sense so it is that notion that you're going to the internet and more and more you're it's not just storage it's actual processing and there's a there's a zillion examples of cloud services it's hard to come you know describe how many different cloud services there are and that's the striking thing in the survey is that people said they they didn't use the cloud but then they gave examples of dropbox and and, you know, Evernote and Gmail and, and Google Docs and all these other cloud services. So I, I think that that simple explanation is, is really an important uh, for lawyers and then, then things build uh, from that. And so it, it's, it is kind of interesting though, Tom, because to me, in my role at, at MasterCard, when I think of cloud, the big issue I point, I always think about is scalability, which is that the cloud allows you to, as you know, transactions grow, traffic grows, you kind of make more service available so you can scale really quickly. Um, and there are there are other benefits that we talk about, but when I talk to lawyers, I feel like I have to keep it, it really simple. So I did put that list. So 
there are sort of these three categories of cloud, uh, public, private, and hybrid. So I think for most lawyers, we're looking at the public clouds, you know, the Dropboxes, the other things like that. Um, it's possible you might do private with uh, this sort of remote access to your site. Hybrid, I would say, is really unusual in the legal setting. And then there are the, these sort of layers of it. So infrastructure as a service, uh, which means that you're, you know, it's basically at the server level or infrastructure or hardware is being hosted elsewhere. Platform as a service goes to the basic operating systems and platforms available, again, over the Internet of a Service. And I think most commonly for lawyers to understand is the software as a service. So whether it's Office 365, Google Docs, Dropbox, that that software is made available to you as a service. And if you start to, it's almost like that as a service is the tip off these days to there's something cloud-like going on. Right. And I'll come back to my argument that about half of what you just said, lawyers don't absolutely need to know. I would argue that that what... Lawyers need to know is, where is my stuff located? You know, if, if people think that their Gmail is actually sitting there on their computer, um, then they need to know that that's not the case. They need to know that it's someplace else. Um, uh, they also need to know if their computer breaks down, then they haven't lost their Gmail. Um, but I, I think it's also important to know the difference between the public cloud and the private cloud, because when it comes to security, when it comes to making sure that your stuff is secure, um, you want to know that you have options on how you store that in a cloud. And so I think that's important. Um, what's what, you know, we, we talked about this on the last podcast. Uh, it's very clear from the ABA survey that, uh, that there's still a great disparity between people thinking they know what the cloud is and you, and what they do when they use the cloud. I think that 52% of lawyers, we said, say they've never used cloud computing or software as a service, but 57% say that they use Dropbox, which clearly, um, shows that, that there's, a misunderstanding about exactly what constitutes a cloud service. You would, I guess you would think people would say, I don't know, rather than know, if they really don't know what it is. Um, so I, I don't know what the real meaning of those answers are. Um, so I think that there's that that need to know it, but I would question whether I don't. I don't really need to know if it's infrastructure as a service or platform as a service or how that works. I just need to know my stuff is someplace else, and uh, and and I need to I need to understand how to protect that information on behalf of my clients and my practice. And I also think the other thing is that your stuff is somewhere else, which you think of as being on the internet, but as a practical matter, is in in, in a big data center somewhere. Um, or it right. might be in several data centers. But I always think of it as in this big, elaborate, well-protected data center. And that's, I, I think, the most helpful way to, to think about the cloud. So I think the, the cloud, how it's become interesting uh, to people is not just sort of the products that now people are thinking about, the Clios, the Rocket Matters, that have become more popular in, in the legal market. Uh, but I think people are starting to understand the benefits of this approach. And so for me, it's scalability on a big scale. But but I think, so if, if I start a small firm and I have, I'm using Clio or Rocket Matter, for example, or Office 365, and I add a couple of attorneys, I don't have to do a 
anything really on site and, you know, bring somebody in to do something on my network server. I just give them accounts uh, on my existing cloud service for those things. And so that makes it really easy to scale uh, because it's on the Internet. There's the backup. There's the security because it's in a big data center. Uh, one of the benefits of cloud is that instead of me installing all my updates and remembering to do that, that's all happening on servers in the data center. And then, of course, the big cloud thing is available anywhere, anytime. So I think there are a lot of positives, and we've always felt this way, Tom, but um, I'll leave it to you to be the, the downer here. But there are there are a few downsides, but I think they, they're becoming in some ways less significant, but you might point out a few of the downsides. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think that there are one or two downsides that we need to cover, but I'm, I'm going to come back real quick and say that I agree that, that some of the benefits you mentioned are important benefits, but I would argue, again, I'll come back to it and say, do lawyers care whether it's scalable? I think that they realize the benefits that cloud computing is scalable, but they really don't pay attention. If you look at the ABA survey, the number one benefit of cloud services for them is it's it's that anywhere access uh, and anytime access. It's 24 Seven, you can get it from it anywhere. Um, there's, you know, right behind that, those answers are the fact that um, there's a low barrier to entry. There, you can get in, and you don't have to set up a lot of software. You don't have a lot, have to have a lot of knowledge about what's going on. You know, we've we've passed. We're in a post-software age where where we don't have to install software all the time anymore. It just kind of works, and we we just kind of use it. And I think those tend to be the main benefits that lawyers are finding with cloud services. Um, in terms of downsides or concerns, uh, I think that confidentiality and security tends to be the concern. But, you know, I kind of hesitate when I hear that. That is the concern of the lawyer, but does that really translate to reality in practice? And I know that there have been times in the past where we've heard stories about Dropbox and people hacking into that. But uh, to be honest, I haven't heard that uh, any other cloud services like Box or any of the others have been hacked. Uh, I, I, I don't never say never. And and, and people are always trying to get into stuff like that. But I, so I think that it's probably a, a well-founded concern that um, not only is privacy and, and confidentiality and security a concern, but the fact that, oh no, it's a loss of control. You're keeping my stuff on someone else's computer. Uh, I don't have control over it anymore. And I think that, frankly, is, if, if not a bigger concern, it's, uh, it, it's definitely right up there in terms of the, the downsides is you just don't have the same confidence that you can control it uh, like you ha would if you kept it on a server or on your desk. Uh, you know, arguably, um, it's being taken better care of. It's more arguably more secure, um, but it's that mental block it's hard to get uh, to get rid of. Yeah, and, and I, I would put it a little bit differently. So I, I think the downsides are what I would call uh, business risk. So what if I go to a cloud service and the company goes out of business or they get hacked, uh, then what happens? So the answer there, I think it so, can be redundancy, you know, where you, you have backup in, with another cloud system. Uh, but you, you, do have to, you do have to think that through. Um, and then I think there, there are going to be questions about what level of confidentiality, you know, do you need to, to encrypt? And, and there'll be some other, other things like that. But I, I think that historically, 
lawyers have been super cautious about the cloud. And what I always like to recommend to people is, and you can just go on Google and find this, uh, but just look for a video tour of, uh, you know, a, a really first class data center. And I think that Google posts videos of their a tour of their own data center and look at the security that's going on and what's happening there. And then, then go into your own office and look at the security of that you're protecting a network server. And I, I think that's, that's a big eye opener on the one side. And then the other thing I, I've always found interesting is that, oh, back in the late 90s, I knew of a firm of, of four people and they want to get started with new computers and a network server and the software and the services to set that all up. And the ballpark was really seven or $8,000 per lawyer in those days mm -hmm. uh, for, for that kind of setup. Now you can say, hey, there's three of us, or say Tom and I wanted to start our own law firm. We already have our own laptops. We'd find a couple cloud services and probably we'd be up and running with our capital costs for starting that firm in the, I don't know, couple hundred dollar a month range to get some of these services, but, you know, nowhere near the 40,000 or, you know, I would say 20, 25,000 that could have been in the past. And then that makes a huge difference because you can start to be in the black in the first month that you open a law practice. And that's a pretty amazing thing. And what's interesting is that, you know, probably five or six years ago when we were first starting to talk about this, six or seven years ago, I probably would have said that one of the trade-offs you're making for that low barrier to entry is that a lot of these tools and services online are not as full-featured, uh, not as strong as we would want them to be. Just the software itself uh, is not reaching the, the level of quality that you get from a, you know, the, the CD that I have that I can download the software directly onto my computer, and, and it's great, very full-featured, rich software. I think we're getting to the point now where that's not the case anymore, where we're seeing uh, a lot of sophisticated programs out there, a lot of sophisticated products um, that are being delivered um, as cloud services. Uh, I think that the, the technology has caught up to the expectation uh, that make it really easy to make that decision to say, let's go for the uh, more cost-efficient way of, uh, of getting that law firm or, uh, or business started up. So, Tom, I, I want to touch on three things I, I thought were important in the way that I look at the cloud. So one I call the post-Katrina moment, because I think that if we went to New Orleans, which we are going to do in a couple of weeks, I got to think that almost every law firm down there is running primarily on the cloud because New Orleans got wiped out and the firms that had some kind of cloud backup were up and going. The other ones were in serious trouble. So I think that uh, there's a big learning there. And so so that, that sort of disaster recovery can be a, a, a big thing. I think the way that you know, we've moved to so mobile and mobile apps and that's all every all of that is is cloud. And then I think anything that we do, Tom, in collaboration, it's it's really difficult to think how we do that without using cloud services of all kinds, from Slack to uh you know you know and, and everything else. So to me those those are sort of three important points. And then then Tom, I, I think what I want to focus on this segment and I'll maybe I'll let you kick it off is that that my main learning from the survey was that 
I don't even know that lawyers talk a good game on due diligence in evaluating cloud services, but they certainly don't walk the walk of whatever it is they're they're talking. I mean, and so the due diligence that lawyers seem to do and report in the survey is, is shocking to me. So I thought maybe it'd be useful to kind of think through uh, and give some tips on, on how people would evaluate cloud services and the d- types of due diligence they need to do. Well, I think you're right. The ABA survey, uh, in looking at the the different types of due diligence that was listed in the survey, I think that pretty consistently, um, only about 30% of the the respondents were using each method. And and how many of that really is who who are uh, not engaging in... uh, in what I would we would consider to be the right kinds of activities to determine whether the cloud storage or the cloud solution is is safe. Um, I'm going to give a cheat sheet uh, as far as what I think is a good resource for that, and I'm going to give a shout out. Although I'm gonna, it's probably an out. A shout out to an outdated service because they really haven't updated their website in, in almost a year now. Um, but the Legal Cloud Computing Association um, is a consortium, a group of a number of cloud vendors and others who are interested in the, the topic. And I thought that their standards are a pretty good list of due diligence standards and the types of things that lawyers need to pay attention to when they are evaluating a software product. And they are uh, questions about uh, the physical and environmental measures. You know, it, you think we have a service that's in the cloud, but like you mentioned, it really is a data center. And how well is that data center constructed? What is the, the physical security there? What happens if there is a fire or other type of disaster? Um, how, how is that protected. We definitely need to look at the at data integrity issues like encryption. How is my data protected um, both when it's sitting in whatever computer it is uh, in a data center or when it's traveling in between that computer and my computer? Who can access it? What are the access controls that are available? Uh, privacy, huge issue when it comes to cloud services. Make sure that the information stays private. Uh, I, I think that those standards are well worth the read. And Dennis, I don't know if you want to dive in any deeper to some of those issues. But I think that that, uh, we'll put a link in the show notes, I think that that's one good, I'll call it a cheat sheet, um, to be able to understand kind of what those standards are that you need to be thinking about. Yeah, I think you do want a checklist. I think that's a really good one. Um, I think as you get experience uh, looking at the cloud services and cloud contracts, uh, you'll see uh, some other things. So typically, I consider, uh, for some people, it can be very important where the actual physical location of data is. That has some implications. Um, if it's outside the U.S. or it's going to move between countries that you need to be aware of. So that's one thing. Getting your data out. So I said, for me, one of the concerns is there becomes an issue where you either don't like the service, uh, somebody might go out of business. That you don't sort pay of your bills. Yeah. You, you don't pay your bills then how do you get your data out? And that can be really significant, obviously, and, and you, you want to give some some thought to that. There's a, a notion that's, that in, in my work is really important. It's called SLAs, sort of like the big acronym for me in, in clouds, which is service level agreement. So what sort of performance um, am I guaranteed? What happens if they don't meet that? How do I escalate problems? Because 
and, and all those things. And you can see that spelled out in a lot of ways. And, and you want to dig in and negotiate uh, those things as they become really important to you because you may see an uptime percentage and you just need to do the calculation because something that's 99% uptime if you calculate the number of hours in a month, uh, you may find that there's more more downtime than than you ever expected. Uh, you know when you you do that. So I think those are the the types of things. And then then over time, this is where I think you go to your clients too, because your clients are using these things, and they're going to have some experience. They're going to have some recommendations. And then what was telling in the survey to me is that. In this area, I feel that if you don't know much, that you're probably going to do like you do if you're investing in the stock market. So you're going to go with the blue chip stocks, the safe stocks, the things that have been around, the big names, rely on brand, and don't really do a lot of experimenting, even if it costs you a little bit more. And so doing that due diligence in the companies themselves is at least as important as your due diligence in, in the features. So I think that's kind of what I had time and I and I but I do the the one other thing I wanted to to mention as we kind of look back at the cloud where we are now I think that the hesitation in the ethics opinions about cloud services I'm not saying it's disappeared but I think that the guidance is is really strong and the emphasis is on reasonableness and due diligence which is I think where it always should have been and I don't think you have the reservations from the state bars that you had maybe five years ago or so where it was an open question whether you could use cloud services. Well, and coming back real quick, I agree, and I want to touch on that in a second. Coming back real quick to uh, a couple other issues of, of due diligence, which I think are things that e- even the, the Legal Cloud Computing Association standards don't really touch in the way that I would want to see them touched, is the the things that are important to my line of business. So what are the record retention policies for, um, for the information? Uh, what happens if uh, you're involved in litigation? Do you have the ability to put that information in that system on a legal hold or part of that information on a legal hold. Being able to understand how long it gets kept and can you delete it according to a retention schedule, which all of you should have, is that something that the system is capable of doing? I think that those are some areas that law firms are just now starting to really find is, is an important uh, part of, of what they're dealing with, whether it's a cloud service or whether it's uh, something that they have in their own office. Uh, to come back real quick to the ethics opinions, what strikes me about that that, and I agree with you, I think that we don't see the alarm or concern being expressed by the state bars that we did before. And, and the reason for that is, and, and, and we're going to put a link in the show notes, Bob Ambrogi has been doing a real good job of, of keeping us up to date on how many state bar associations or ethics uh, boards have done an opinion on cloud computing. I think that the number we're up to is either 22 or 23 states, which is a great number, but it's uh, not even half of the states have weighed in on this issue. So I would I would say that we still have ways to go on this. I, I don't think that any of these other states are uh, are rushing to say, please don't use it. I think they're just being silent um, and letting the other states have their say. But I, I am surprised that it's as few states as, as it is that are have actually weighed in on it, given, given that I think the reasonable standard is pretty much the standard across the board. Um, it just surprised me a little bit. 
And then just to wrap it up, Tom, the, the other thing I've always liked about the cloud tools is that the competition in features really benefits us. So that you look at any of the cloud services that we've been part of, you know, Google Docs, Slack recently, those sorts of things, they keep improving them all the time. And so it's not like you got to, you know, buy the next version. You pay in a monthly subscription. And over time, the service just keeps getting better and you have more features. And and I think that's a plus. So for especially for the firms that tended to be got anywhere from two to eight versions sometimes behind where the actual software version was, the cloud has a real benefit in in bringing you the most current features. Yep, totally agree. All right, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsor. Looking for a process server you can trust? ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. We've seen a number of stories recently, complete with all kinds of stats, about how literally no one is downloading mobile apps anymore. So that prompted us to check our own app patterns and behaviors. Tom, what's happening out there? And are you an outlier? Are you not downloading anything either? Well, I will say it's not no one. I mean, the survey that I saw recently was that uh, I think 50% of the people surveyed are downloading zero apps per month. And this is actually similar to the ABA survey, uh, where I think that more than 50% have never downloaded either a legal app or a business app or any kind of app to their phone, which just kind of blows me away. But I wonder if we are the outliers. Uh, But I think it's because most people have relatively simple needs for their phone. Um, They use the phone itself, although frankly, when we get down to the millennials and the younger generations, they aren't using it as a phone. They're using it as a texting device and a Snapchat device and a video device. Um, But they're sending text messages, they're checking email, they're watching videos, they participate in social media. You can do this in all of six or seven apps. And what else do you need? Why would you need anything else on the phone? I, I do consider myself an outlier, but it's more because I'm looking for better or more interesting ways of doing something on a mobile device that I couldn't do before. And I'll, I'll give an example. I was going to give this as my parting shot, but I'm going to change it around and say, as we're recording this, Google has just rolled out an app called Google Trips, which uh, takes uh, email uh, reservations that it finds on trips that you're taking, and it packages up your itinerary. It can tell you, here's how you should plan your day. Here's how long it's going to take you to go to this museum or this tour or this walking tour or anything like that. Um, And it's a really interesting way, uh, people are looking at it, of planning a vacation. And the fact that people are constantly coming up with new and interesting ways to make your life easier um, in an app, I think it's fascinating. And I like to keep trying apps out. But I will say I did try an experiment. I've been, some podcast we listen to, I've started to count the number of apps that I have and how many I actually use. Uh, When I started the experiment, I counted about 
250 apps on my phone. Yep, it's a lot. It's a lot of apps. But what's interesting is how many I wanted to actually keep on my phone because I, I kind of falls into that you never know when I might need this or I could envision myself needing this. I, I, I've, I've only gotten up to the letter D. I've been kind of going through the alphabet and I've only gotten up to the letter D. And, and so far I have had, I've counted 51 apps and I was only del- able to delete eight of them because I really didn't use them. So my app usage tends to be pretty high. So I Guess I guess I tend to be an outlier here. Dennis, what about you? I feel like I'm an outlier, but I, I, I really started to think about this. So um, so on my home screen of my phone, that's probably the most stable place. And but I've I've added and deleted apps from the, the home screen. And so I mean recently I we've talked about how I moved Slack to the home screen, and that was a big help to me. Uh, the Google Authenticator app is now on the, on my home screen because of multi-factor, and it, it generates the, the code, so that's easy. that becomes easier for me to find. But I think that I, I sort of do the apps in a little bit of a flurry, you know? So if I'm traveling, say, to New Orleans, I... I just go out and looked and see if there are any New Orleans apps, you know, and that may give me the street maps, other things like that. If I'm going to go to a conference, I'm always looking for a conference app, uh, you know, so there, there'll be a number of things. And, and then, you know, I, I have uh, a number of, of blogs I follow that suggest apps. So I do suspect I'm an outlier. And I know that uh, my wife had, and I have had this conversation because she doesn't have many apps because she decided against my advice, but she now is willing to admit that was a mistake, that she thought it was <laughs> better to save $100 by getting the smallest memory iPhone the last time she got a phone mm. instead of paying an extra $100 to get more memory. Well, with the photos she takes, there's basically no room you know, for her to do apps. And so I, I think that sometimes what you have is that the people who have the smaller memory phones um, will start to put apps on there and they'll take pictures and they'll, they'll get the out of memory thing. And so then that Google Photos commercial was made for your wife. Right. Yeah, definitely. And and so I, I think that that can be a, a factor. But I was like you, Tom, that I just decided to delete a bunch of apps. And then um, it was surprising to me, like how many um, I just decided to to leave on. And I may never use them, but, but they're really interesting apps. And there could be an occasion, you know, I'm on a plane or there's some other things that, that I might want to do. So I, I was just flipping through and, I'm, you know, my daughter's now at Portland State and there's a Portland State app I have on my phone. Uh, you know, why not? And MasterCard has some apps. So, of course, I have those on. Um, you know, so I think there are a number of a number of things like that where I, I think time we're probably outliers and that we're more willing to experiment. But I also think we have the space to, to do that. I'll say just in a matter of passing that you talk about looking at your your home screen, uh, one advantage that Android has over iOS is the ability to use um, any one of a number of launcher programs that actually allow you to customize how you view not only your home screen, but all of the screens that you have. So you don't have to just have icon, 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 like on on an iPhone. And um, there are a number of launchers that do this, but the one that I've used in the past is actually 
from Microsoft. It's called the Arrow Launcher. And what Arrow does is Arrow um, pays attention to which apps you use the most, and it populates your home screen with those apps. So you don't have to actually make any decision. It's deciding for you, here are the apps that you use the most, and it puts them front and center where you need to be able to see them, which I think is kind of a neat way to, to look at it. So uh, if you're an Android user, some of those launcher tools are pretty cool. Now it's time for our parting shots. That one tip, website, or observation you can use a second. This podcast ends. Tom, take it away. So I think that um, most tech people um, have agreed over the past couple of years that when it comes to the the different uh, search bots that are out there or the, the the search tools that each of the services have had between Cortana and Google Now and Siri, that Siri really has been the one that has been in uh, in need of an upgrade and has not been as uh, satisfying as many Apple users would like for her to be. Uh, what's interesting is the uh, this article that I'm going to put. In a link to in the show notes um, from VentureBeat about how Apple, you know, part of their plan um, with with rolling out their new AirPods, their new wireless earbuds, um, is to actually create um, the world's most powerful bot. It is actually to give Siri all kinds of power um, because it will now be pulling into you. You when when you use those AirPods, you basically have to interact with Siri to get things done. If you want to turn the volume up or down, you have to touch the AirPod and talk to. Siri to do it. You can't actually use your phone, which is another problem that I, I'm not really a fan of. But I think it's all geared towards making Siri a much more powerful tool. Uh, I'm very interested to see where this goes. So, uh, uh, you know, if you're uh, an Apple user, take a look at those, uh, those AirPods. They might be helping to make Siri a much more powerful bot. Tom, I, I have two, and part is my continuing quest to get more uh, coverage of the TV shows that we watch onto this podcast. But uh, I wouldn't totally recommend the series Orphan Black on BC, BBC America and how uh, the star of the show, Tatiana Maslany, who plays about half a dozen different characters in an amazing way, won an Emmy this year. So we're very, both very excited about that. Long overdue. The second one I have is there's a podcast called Canvas on the uh, Relay, I think it's Relay FM network. So the podcast number 19, and they're basically talking about different ways to do things on your, it's an iPhone focused show, but it's, I find it really helpful. But this one is an intro to iOS 10, it's probably about an hour long podcast, but if you want, if you've downloaded and upgraded to iOS 10, but you're not really sure what you got from that and why the the home button is working in a funny way that you didn't expect. This podcast is really a good overview uh, with a lot of details about what to expect in iOS 10 and what new features are in there. And, and I, I think it will really help you uh, start to use iOS 10. Well, and uh, along those lines, uh, I've, if you follow the Mac Stories website, uh, Federico Vitici uh, routinely posts very long-form reviews and guides to things. And his his uh, iOS 10 guide is, <laughs> I guess we'll call epic. Uh, it's, it's huge. It's massive. So if you want a lot of detail, um, it's been very widely regarded by uh, most Mac experts out there. So that's another resource for you. So that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mall Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for this episode at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site where you can find archives of all of our previous podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please email us at 
tkmreport at gmail.com or send us a tweet. I'm at Tom Mile and Dennis is at Dennis Kennedy. So until the next podcast, I am Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. Help us out by telling a couple of your friends and colleagues about the podcast. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network.